Hello and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes all over the world. And we got a pretty exciting agenda today because one of our first 60 episode guests is back here to do round two, not only to update us on what she and all the folks behind the Diabolemia Helpline are up to, but I wanted to preface this with, we've been talking about mental health. We've been talking about disordered eating. We've been talking about some of the obstacles and challenges that people with diabetes deal with outside of just blood sugar management, outside of just carb counting and exercise and all of those sort of the basics of diabetes. And we're extending into these adjacent spaces and challenges that people with diabetes know all too well, but often go overlooked in the mainstream media side of diabetes coverage. So I'd like to welcome back the founder of the Diabolemia Helpline and chairman of the board, Aaron Akers. Welcome back to the show. Hi, guys. It's so good to see you both. I know you both outside of the podcast. I have spent time with you both. And so it's just so nice to be here. And Rob, I've known you for, oh my gosh, so long. And so it's so nice to be here. It's so funny. I was reflecting on just exactly what you said. The first thing being like, you were one of the first people that I had on the podcast and then subsequently met at like multiple events afterwards. I think the first time we met was ADA 2018. So shortly after we had recorded that first episode. And then I can't tell you how many times we've run into each other, both overseas and also running into your mom and and at different conferences all over the country. So yeah, always feel very close. And I know I'm in the right place whenever I run into you. So yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Let's talk about your mom. (laughs) Yeah. We have to say it. Aaron's mom came with her to a conference when I met Aaron and She's so sweet. Your mom is a gem. Love her. Shout out to Aaron's mom. Aww. Mama Dawn. Mama Dawn is known throughout the diabetes world now inter- internationally as well. And yeah, I will say she came back from a conference because she's she's now the executive director of Diabolemia Helpline. And she is getting her master's in mental health counseling to work specifically with people with chronic illnesses and mental health disorders. And so she is she is now attending conferences formerly as an advocate and now as a, as a mental health professional. And she came back from a conference and she said, you will not believe who I ran into. And I, I said, who? And she said, tallest man you ever knew. And I said, oh, Rob, you ran into Rob. And she said, yeah, he gave me a big old hug and he ran right up to me. And he said, Aaron's mom. And so he, she is, she is, she is beloved. And she was, she was in the diabetes sphere so long that she said, you know what? I'm just going to switch jobs. So I can do this for a living. And so now she is she is she is working now just as the executive director of Diabolemia Helpline. But she is in school right now to get her master's so she can she can help those of us who are who are suffering from mental health disorders alongside our diabetes. Well, I can't think of a better path for someone who's such a true advocate from going to just advocating in their spare time and giving of themselves to then turning that into their professional career to better people long-term. And and yeah, that's exactly what I did. I hopped out of my booth. There was like a line of people in front and I was like, no, I'm going to go talk to Mama Dawn and give her a big hug for all that she does. So it's always nice to see a friendly face, especially at those big conferences where there's a lot of people around. So looking forward to running into both of you again down the road. Yep, she will. She will be at, we will both be at, in, in Houston at ACDES. We have a poster presentation that we are actually presenting on the risk of suicidality in people with type 1 diabetes because 
dyslemia helpline, which is now DBH because we have moved beyond just diabetes and eating disorders. And now we do diabetes and all mental health kind of as part of our expansion. And one of the things that we have really been looking into in the last couple of years with one of our board members who's specializing in it is the risk of suicidal ideation and, and suicidal risk in people with type 1 diabetes and how that is very un, 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 unlooked at and, and unstudied. And the more that it is studied, the more risk we see. And just like everything else in type 1 diabetes, kind of the more we look at it in mental health, the more we see it. And, and so we're, we're doing a, a presentation at ACDES on it. And I'm really excited to see that. But we actually have a presentation at the International Conference, not us, but a different speaker, where when is, when is lack of self-care actually self-harm, right? When, is, when do we stop taking care of ourselves actually an act of self-harm? And I think that's an important line that we, we draw and that we look at. And so I was so excited when we got that proposal in. And that was one of the ones that the committee was checkmarked. Yes, absolutely. We were very excited to, to, to be able to have that one at the conference. I, I love that sort of progression. And we talked about your mom's progression from advocacy to professional and, you know, and pursuing you know, her, her master's now as well. I want to talk about the... the the progression, not only of, of you personally, but also now from Diabolemia Helpline to DBH to be a more encompassing, all-encompassing resource for diabetes and mental health. I think that, you know, connection to, as you mentioned, suicidality and lack, you know, not caring for yourself in diabetes and that where that turns into actual self-harm. How, how has that journey been? Obviously, like you, you guys were the first, I think, publicly you know, public resource that I encountered about diabolemia. And I've learned so much about diabetes and disordered eating just from interfacing with you guys in the community over the last few years and all the amazing advocates that have told their stories. But how did that progress? And like, where did you identify that there were other adjacent mental health, you know, challenges and disorders that you guys felt you could, you know, be in a position to get people help? Yeah, it was, it was a really, it was it was a both long and yet a seamless transition. When we started out, there was there were no resources for diabetes and eating disorders. There were amazing there was an amazing resource that still exists called BDI, Behavioral Diabetes Institute in San Diego for diabetes and mental health. And I just want to give them a huge shout out. You know, Susan Gibbsman and Bill Polonsky run it and 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 they were doing amazing work. But they really focused on mental health and there weren't really a lot of things out there for eating disorders, and especially for patients. And so we, we really focused on that. And we were the first 501c3 national nonprofit to really focus on that. And then we progressed to having a, a sister organization in London and then one in New Zealand called DITA uh, and to kind of just expand both run by former clients of ours actually that that had the same kind of thought that was there are no organizations in our country that are doing this and there need to be and eventually in around 2018 BDI had lost their funding and they stopped being able to put on conferences and 
it was, I think, a really tragic loss to the diabetes community. And what we also were saying was that so many of our personal clients who had come to us with diabolemia, they were they had they had other mental health disorders as well. They had depression, they had anxiety, they had burnout, and diabolemia are so closely linked. My diabolemia started with burnout and so many other people's. It's the most common starting factor in disordered eating. Well, in, in diabolemia specifically, it is burnout and a sense of diabetes distress. And so to be able to tease those apart, you really need to be able to have some professional resources for the depression and the anxiety and the diabetes burnout and the diabetes distress. And so it became obvious that in order to fully help these people, we had to have the resources for things beyond eating disorders, for things like depression and anxiety. And with the numbers being, you know, 33% of people having depression and, you know, 2.5 times more likely to have anxiety, it just became such an obvious need for people to have those resources and such a lacking in, in, in the diabetes space for it. And so when we started the conference, so many of what we got as far as proposals for, for um, topics were not just for eating disorders, but they were for things like shame and stigma and mm. things that were general mental health. And you can't, you can't, you can't really tackle eating disorders without tackling some of the broader mental health topics. And so that's when we moved um, as a as a board voted to move into general mental health. And 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 the idea to go to DBH as a term was also because diabolemia is a media coined term. It's not in the DSM. It's not a doctor you know, originated term. It's not something that you can be diagnosed with by by a physician. It's not something you can be treated by. And it also is something that can be alienating if what I have is diabetes and anorexia. I don't have diabolemia. If what I have is binge eating disorder and and diabetes, I don't have diabolemia. And so we really want to be as inclusive as possible. And we had also moved into, have moved into working with adolescents and working with adolescents with mental health disorders. And if I'm 13 and I hear about diabolemia helpline and I've never heard that term and I go home and I type it in, I have learned something new. And we don't want to be the reason a 13-year-old learns something that can be that can be not great for them. And so DBH is just a safe way that we can teach a 13-year-old about anxiety and depression and mental health and and disordered eating without necessarily giving them the how-tos on an eating disorder. That's such an important distinction to make for pediatric patients. And like you said, like they've never heard the term and, and there is that sort of downside sometimes to education at the wrong time or without supervision. And so that, that's a really interesting sort of caveat on, on you know, changing the name and, and evolving that to be more inclusive, but also as sort of a safety standard. I do want to go back a little bit though, because something you you told me you know, has really got my brain spinning, got my wheels spinning. So you were talking about the link between diabetes burnout and diabetes distress and diabetes eating disorders and specifically diabolemia. I think oftentimes I 
see language in the community where we look at burnout as this sort of destination, the sort of end point of like, you know, it could be anxiety, could be depression, could just be numbers and distress. And that leads you to this, you know, or new medication or challenges with insurance. And there's obviously so many inputs that go towards that, but it leads us towards burnout as this destination. And the way that you positioned it is that it's not just a destination, it's an inflection point that can lead to other really harmful adjacent disorders and diseases and both mental and physical. So talk about some of those connections, if if you don't mind about like, you know, when some of the consistent themes that you see with some of the patients that you guys treat and some of the people that you treat through the Diabulimia Helpline and, and the DBH conference, like what, what are those, some of those things to watch out for in that diabetes distress and diabetes burnout that could potentially turn into, you know, something more damaging? Yeah, I think it's really important that we as a community and, and we as, as physicians both acknowledge that diabetes, diabetes burnout is not an end point, but really just a middle point for so many people's journey because diabetes burnout can last for years. It's not, it, people act like it's something that I hit and then that's rock bottom and then I rebound. And and diabetes burnout can last for for years. It can be a place where I just sit and I think that this is as good as it's going to get and this is where my diabetes lives and this is where I I exist and this is where my life is. And th- the physical complications of that are the ones that we all know, right? Those are the the diabetes complications that don't, you know, need to be repeated. But the, the, the mental complications of that are the fact that there are no serotonin in your body. The longer you live at high blood sugar levels, the less serotonin your body starts to create. And so you are now causing a physical depression in your body, a clinical depression, because you have a blood sugar of higher than 250. So the longer your blood sugar is above 250, the less serotonin your body makes and the longer you are creating a physical depression in your body. And so we act like you, you know, you get to burnout and then that's that's the end, but you get to burnout and you start to create a loop because you start to create a physical depression, which then keeps you in burnout because you're depressed about your diabetes and you're depressed about where your diabetes is. And because you don't like where your diabetes is, you are in a physical depression. And because you're in a physical depression, you can't do anything about your diabetes. And so it becomes a loop that is reinforcing itself. And so once you hit that point, there are so many different mental places that people spiral down. There's anxiety about the complications that people have. Like, we all know that you don't get there and then you're like, well, oh, well. You think about the complications, right. you think about what's going to happen in 10 years. You think about, oh, my eyes, my feet, my kidneys. Nobody is a diabetic that's just like, well, I'm sure everything's going to be fine. You think about what's going to happen and that causes major anxiety. And a lot of people have anxiety about the fact that they're not doing anything, but they're in a depressive cycle or a burnout spiral and they can't do anything. There's the depression itself and all of the complications that that can cause. A lack of serotonin causes a lack of dopamine, and it can actually cause your body to create less and less of the hormones that you need. And that can cause a lasting long-term effect that can actually take medication to restart in your brain. And then there's, of course, the eating disorders, which is that 
if you see a, a, a weight drop and you have a lack of dopamine and a lack of serotonin in your body and people around you are saying, well, you look great and you feel like, mm. but people are saying, well, you look great. You're thinking at least that's something. That's something I can hold on to. I don't feel good and I hate myself right now, but gosh darn it, I look so good in these jeans and everyone is saying so. And so, and I know it's coming from something. And so that's where the eating disorder starts. And so that's when you start restricting food or restricting insulin or doing unhealthy coping behaviors because you don't feel good, but you think at least I look good or at least there is a numbing behavior in which I can make the bad feeling stop in some way. Well, and I think you mentioned it as well. If you're starved for dopamine, as well because of your anxiety, depression, and disordered eating, that complement may give you the dopamine that your brain is craving just to keep, you know, powering yourself up. And that, you know, creates another pattern. I think, you know, there for for people who are not as experienced going through like talk therapy, and and we've talked a lot about it really in the last six months on on this podcast as a really important part of what we recommend for people with diabetes. And there's obviously so many barriers to diabetes in general, but also just practical mental health. And it varies very much state to state, country to country. But one of the things that has come up repeatedly for me in my work with my therapist over the years is the recognition of patterns. And you just talked about that pattern and the sort of doom loop of, you know, a little bit of anxiety leading to some depression, leading to restricting insulin or, you know, not you know, checking your blood sugar or, you know, whatever, whatever, however that manifests itself in your diabetes therapy. Uh, and then kind of getting stuck in that loop that ends up leading to, you know, more destructive loops and and behaviors. What advice would you give or do you guys give at DBH for people who, you know, maybe haven't, aren't recognizing some of the patterns and cycles that they're setting themselves on? And, and where would you uh, ask them to start if they were curious about, Hey, maybe maybe some of this behavior is linked, and, and you know, maybe I am starting down one of these paths or in in a negative pattern that could be leading me somewhere dangerous. Well, we obviously always start with saying therapy. You know, we also obviously always start with a, a good therapist is is key, and we have a database of of therapists who are trained in working with. People with chronic illnesses, diabetes, but also just chronic illnesses in general, because the grief that you experience from a chronic illness is so unique and so specific that having somebody that you don't have to explain that to, and also having somebody that you don't have to explain it to when you have the the fear of going low and the fear of going high. And, and and the fear of what the long-term complications mean. So we always start with therapy. And because a therapist, we will tell you if what you need is, you know, CBT or EMDR, you know, very different kinds of modalities for very different kinds of trauma. Um, but beyond that, there are, there are different kinds, you know, just because no one else can can heal or do your inner work for you doesn't mean you can should or need to do it alone. For so many people, seeing a therapist or going to, you know, treatment every week might not be a reality. As, as, and as someone who goes to therapy every single week 
therapy is expensive as hell. You know, I'm not yes. going to pretend like therapy is um, like therapy is a luxury and a privilege. And I will acknowledge my privilege full heartedly and saying that I, I love my therapist, you know, shout out to Quinn. You know, I'm sure she's listening to this. I'm sure she's a big Dybex doing things fan. And, uh, but, but, but she's a, she's a luxury. She is something that I can afford because I have, I have the money. And, and I think that if, if you can't afford luck therapy, the, the, the work that you, you need to do is still something that you should be doing with somebody, with, with, with other people. And that does not mean that your friends are somebody you should be doing it, that should be doing it for you. You know, if your friends are looking at you like, you need to be paying me right now. That means it's time to stop complaining to your friends, right? And there are communities out there, though, and those communities are out there for a reason. I believe me, Helpline started as a Facebook support group, and we still have a Facebook support group that is, you know, 5,000 people strong now from all over the world. You know, we have people from almost every continent. You know, I think Antarctica is missing. So, you know, shout out to. Oh, I can't remember her name, but your last guest, get her to Rachel. Rachel, yes, yeah. uh, made me feel like I need to get my shit together, like making sure her her low juice isn't frozen. And I'm like, I can barely remember to bring mine half the time. But, you know, get her to join. She can represent the continent. But, you know, we've got 5000 people there. So no matter where you're from or what you're struggling with, there's someone there that's going to be able to help you. and. Or, you know, come to the conference. It's, it's, it costs what one week of therapy costs for me. And, and, and that was important for us. And, and we've got discounts too. And, and, and to make sure that it, and and we have scholarships because we want to make sure that cost is not a barrier because it's a good way to get a start on the journey. You know, I'm not saying come to the conference and you're cured, but I'm saying it can be a good jumpstart and that there are, there are communities out there that can help you on that journey. If there's also, you know, if you're in diabetes distress, there's diabetes distress.org, take the, take the, take the questionnaire and go through it and, you know, find out if, you know, how, how far down are you? I, the seven points on it, I think are really good and really important to find out where you are and where you need work. It can be, if you're in therapy, it can be a good place to bring into your therapist. And if, and, and if you're not in therapy, it can be a good thing to like bring to like, again, like a community based group to be like, yo, this is what I'm struggling with. Anyone else struggling? There are diabetes and mental health groups on Facebook. And, 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 and that's specifically for that, you know, you don't even need to take it to a general diabetes group. You can take it to a diabetes and mental health group where everyone else is struggling with something else, where everyone else is saying, I'm in burnout, I'm in distress, I'm I I'm on the I'm on the brink too. And, you know, I think being on the brink was kind of what this conference was 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 built upon was that that idea that there are so many of us out there that are that are there, that are on the brink. Well, I, I want to dig into the conference a little bit because I know this is the the third conference, but it's the first one that's in person because of because of COVID. It's been difficult, obviously, getting everybody together. They've all been in person. Okay. 
This is just the first one that's in London. So this is our first international one. The first one was in New Orleans. The second one was in San Diego. And this one's in London. So this is our first international conference. The 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 in-person one is really important to us because every experience we have as, as people kind of add to the tapestry of who we are, right? And the big emotional experience have the chance to truly change us. And the more intense the emotional experience, the more likely it is to cause a lasting change. And we've seen in the past five years of the conference that the attendees who go to this conference, who are waffling in their recovery, find that you know, that lasting path that they were missing and those that were missing, you know, kind of a recovery path altogether, find that beginning of the road that leads to, you know, the, a life of peace that we're all looking for. But it really starts with, you know, a lunch together, a processing group where we talk about our feelings or an interactive session led by a doctor who also happens to be a type one diabetic herself. But it needs to be in person where you're looking someone in the eye where you're holding somebody's hand, where you can say to somebody, I, I see you, I feel you, you know, it's the hug, it's, it, it's the running up to somebody at a conference, it's the, it's, it's the thing that makes almost all diabetics instant friends, it's that I see you, you see me, we are, we are kin. And, and so it's, it's what we have had the, the support group online for, 14 years now and we have seen such important relationships grow from that we've seen bridesmaids and best friends and 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 godmothers come from that group and so we knew we know that the relationships are what matter and so we knew that getting people together in person was going to be a really important aspect of this of this conference i totally agree and i think like there's something to just a galvanizing experience like you, you think of you know, for me, when I was a kid, going to like summer camps and just, you know, being away from your normal day to day, committed to something with a group of people, whether it's learning, whether it's searching, whether it's community focused, like obviously there's, there's tons of research about just the impact of being able to, uh, like you said, sit down with a professional or just appear and say, I see you, I, I accept you as you are. And we're both here today, like looking for something for each other. And, and here to not only look for something for themselves, but also extend and, and help others. And, you know, as I look at the speakers at the conference, lots of friends of the podcast, Mary Mosier, Sarah Moback, uh, and, and obviously yourself. So just an amazing array of people from all over the world, you know, there for a, you know, a, a singular purpose to connect with others who are like them. And like you said, like being international now, like, and being able to address these issues from all over the world, like obviously in every country, there are different, you know, access challenges, there are different socioeconomic challenges, there are different stigmas, but being able to hear from different sides, I, I imagine is, is just an incredible experience for, you know, for everybody who attends. Yeah, it was, it was really important to us. When we started the conference, you know, it was called the International Conference at the beginning because we knew we wanted to hear from from all over. And we wanted to hear new voices, not the same 20 people that have been kind of saturating the diabetes sphere for the last 20 years. We, want, we wanted to hear new research. We wanted to hear cutting edge research. It's 
We give awards every year called the Flame Awards. And one is the committee hands out is called Innovator of the Year. And it's to a clinician doing groundbreaking research. And one is Advocate of the Year to a patient who's really pushing the field forward for patients and diabetes and disorders. And it's, it, it goes back to our theory that the only way to solve the, the kind of the crisis facing our community is with this holistic approach by both clinicians and patients working together. And that also means that we have to do it internationally, that it can't be this Eurocentric idea that Americans can, can solve it. I mean, one out of four Americans or one out of four women, excuse me, and one out of four men with diabetes are omitting insulin in order to lose weight. And that has been a study that has been replicated in, in, in Sweden, in Norway, in, oh God, in China and, and all over the world. And so we need to hear from these countries where they're seeing the exact same results and figure out not only why is this happening everywhere, but what are they doing differently? Um, we have an entire session that's just the, the, the French telling us what they're doing because they have a Congress, an entire conference called the Congress about Diabetes and Eating Disorders. So what are they doing over there that is different than what we're doing over here? So many of our, 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 <clears throat> excuse me, our speakers are from the UK where they don't call it diabulimia anymore. They call it TIDE, type one disordered eating. And what, and, and they've got it in, in parliament. They've got laws about it in parliament because one of their leaders in parliament lost her daughter, lost, excuse me, lost his daughter to, to the complications of a diabulimia. And she was actually a, a volunteer of our organization in London. And so it, it hit really close to home. And so they've worked really hard to kind of push that through parliament. And, and so we want to hear, you know, first of all, what are they doing over there? Second of all, how did they do it? Um, you know, it's a much smaller country, but we would love to see some of that advocacy rep represented over here. And so we really, and we've got, Speakers from Eritrea and Tappy. She's from South Africa. And she's talking to us about what it means to have mental health issues in South Africa with diabetes. You know, uh, we talk about what it means to have the, the issues over here. But, you know, when you have issues having or you have issues getting diabetes supplies in Africa, in South Africa, what does it mean to, to face, you know, mental health access as well? And so we really want to hear about what it means all over the world. To, to face diabetes and mental health access challenges and what can we what can we be doing better? We're partnering with a lot of really amazing organizations. When we were in the United States, we offered, you know, 14 CEUs so that we that professionals could could come and learn and and get credit for their jobs. And now that we're international, we'll be offering CPD credits, which is kind of the international version of CEUs and and partnering up we're starting partnering up with like GDRF UK and and some of the international organizations now that we're going to be in London and it's just it's 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 really important to us to show that this is not a eurocentric problem and so we cannot have a eurocentric approach we need to hear from all over the world and from 
all, all different all different countries as as well as what Americans think because we always hear what Americans think. <laughs> we I'm, do. We're we're all pretty we're all pretty loud. All you Americans have microphones. It's the whole thing. Everybody everybody's got a podcast, right? No. I love that. I think it's great that you want to, I mean, obviously, yeah, how can you get a full view of something unless you get everybody's point of view, right? And I think that when we're talking about eating disorders, so much of it is focused on women. And I, I feel that like we're constantly talking about women and eating disorders and how like our mental is around it and men are just so underrepresented. So I guess my, I'm, I'm wondering like what the resources for men really are when it comes to disordered eating because it's i mean you i think the stat you gave was one in four men with one diabetes in, which is insane yeah it's insane yeah so it's one out of four for women one out of seven for men which yeah it's insane we have a marginalized pop marginalized panel uh, which will include people of the bipoc community and then males because in the eating disorder community males are a marginalized population and so in in the past and and at this at this at this a conference as well. It's really important to us to hear what it means to be a male with an eating disorder because they are a marginalized population. Like you said, you you see a, a pamphlet come out from Nita and it's it's for women. It used to be for skinny white women. Oh, it's but it's gotten a little better, a little better. But it it is still usually it's it's for women, and and so we need to be acknowledgement that especially in the diabetes world. We have a higher than normal rate than we do in the the general population of eating disorders in men. This is because men are given the same training, same age education that women are given around diabetes, around the importance of food, around the importance of numbers, the same kind of socio um, training that we are given that make us higher than normal to have an eating disorder. Men get that too. And so although we have a biological imperative to have an eating disorder those also are something that male have the fact that we don't get satiety signals that's something that men have there are a lot of things that make men more likely to get it for if they're if they have diabetes and so that's something we we will be talking about in that marginalized panel because in 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 the eating disorder world men are a marginalized community which feels so strange to say in our in our world right to be like men need a voice too but but they do in the eating disorder community you have to acknowledge that men need a voice. So we'll have a panel that will be three people of, or well, two people of color, one person from the LGBTQ community, and then two men. Because we want to make sure that we're hearing from everybody to hear what did it mean to have your, your care affected by being a male? Was it hard to get access to get from eating disorders as a male? And then there are two male-focused eating disorder um, organizations that we work with that I'm gonna, not going to remember. Beat Ed is the name of one of them that is in the UK that is male-focused for eating disorders. And another one that I will send a link to so that you guys can put it up that's in the US, but that both work ex ex exclusively with male. So they are male-focused eating disorder resources. Unfortunately, they're not for diabetes male focused eating disorder that's kind of one you're going to have to tease out between the diabetes focused eating disorders and the male focused eating disorders but there there are some good male eating disorder resources out there well that that was actually one of the reasons why earlier this year we 
we did a little episode with with Ben Zeal to offer his CDCS perspective, but also like having two men discuss e- like disordered eating on a podcast. I think I just had not seen in the diabetes community, and and you know obviously, although you know the the premise of that was mostly like if you have di- diabetes, like you live with disordered eating, even if you're you don't have an eating disorder, like a diagnosed eating disorder, just because of how much information you're balancing on a regular basis. And like you said, men and women often have the same like socio introduction to diabetes and training. And so there is, you know, some challenges there, obviously. So, you know, I think that was a, an interesting, you know, opportunity to just like bring that into the open. And, and you're right. It is weird to say, oh, like men are underrepresented. And it's like, oh, are they really? And it's like, yes, they are in this case. And I think like it's just important to normalize that conversation rather than to just make it so, you know, exclusive to to one gender or another. And, um, you know, I think I think it's awesome to have more representation on those panels just to hear a different perspective. And, and often, like you said, the, the perspectives from around the world, diabetes is not a monolith. And we often talk about access and mental health and, and information, but those are not a monolith either. And like, if your number one priority is you're unable to get test strips and you live in, you know, a remote South Africa, well, that's a very different mental health challenge than somebody living in the U.S. or a more developed country or, or with more resources. And so, you know, just I think it's so enlightening to just be able to hear person-to-person, peer-to-peer perspectives that just open your eyes about what it's like to live with diabetes in other places because it truly is so different for everyone. Yeah, we're really excited. And I have to say, I, I, I heard that interview with Ben and I loved it. It done it was so well done. And I thought that you guys really covered a lot of what makes it so so easy for people to fall into the trap of do I have disordered eating or do I have eating disorders? And I, uh, I love Ben. He just posted uh, something on Instagram the other day that just said, diabulimia, let's talk about it. And I thought it was just so important to just bring it out right into the open. And I think it's it's so important that that somebody with such an import with with such a huge following about food and 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 weight and body image just says hey hey like how much of what I, what I do and 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 my body image and my food is is disordered eating and is is eating disordered and to have a, a male perspective on it was I think so important and I thought that was so well done and Sorry, I just wanted to give you your flowers, and I, I, I had to. I was so I, that was so important. I, 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 I missed the question altogether. No, no, it's, I, it's fine. I, I think it's, it's a good transition because I think we, we talked about some of the warning signs. We talked about the, the intersection of burnout and and eating disorders and diabulimia specifically. We talked about you know DBH being more inclusive of the other diabetes related eating disorders, not just diabulimia and. And also like the difficulties of, you know, education while also wanting to make sure that it's education in the right way so that the, you know, vulnerable people at the wrong time don't discover it. I, I want to kind of rewind back to a little bit of our first interview about your story, but I want to focus on the the time in our lives with diabetes that uh, HCPs and I think often in in previous and maybe still, you know, at large, but like in the diabetes community, we're doing better to unpack this language, but that we typically call as non-compliant and, you know, the teenage years and those years where there's so many hormones, there's so many life changes, you're really learning who you are, you're growing, you're changing, going through puberty. 
in the, and it's often labeled sort of under teenage rebelliousness. So I, I'd love to address like, you know, for you and your story and for the community members that you serve through DBH and the helpline for caregivers and or people who are living in that time of their life with diabetes right now, just some, I don't know, words of advice or normalization about, you know, difficulties during that time. Because I, you know, when parents talk to me, I tell them that was the most difficult time with my life with diabetes. It was also at the very beginning for me. So for people who've lived with diabetes for a long time, sometimes it can be a little bit shocking, but I would love to just talk about like that, that time frame specifically and its role in mental health and, you know, and, and disorder eating. Yeah, that, that was not, that, that was not good times for me. Teenage years was, was not a fun time. I, that's when my eating disorder was at, was, was, was a raging beast. It was, it's kind of acknowledged in my house that most of what, what was done in in my house was kind of you know we we were kind of like oh well that that wasn't Aaron that was the eating disorder and 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 it's it's like my blood sugar was rarely below five hundred for for a good portion of of my high school life and and I missed my my prom because I was in the hospital because I was so intent on being thin enough for my prom that I ended up in DKA. Um, and so for 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 kids and teenagers i would say fo- focus on on living your life focus on 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 doing whatever you need to do to be a a a, a person and and you know that means having a healthy blood sugar you know i couldn't do anything because my blood sugar was 500 i Ended up taking half of my classes online because I was so sick. I couldn't have a full schedule. I was so intent on I was so intent on not letting my diabetes control me that my diabetes was absolutely controlling every aspect of what I did. Mm. Um, and so I think it's important to just acknowledge that okay, you've diabetes that that sucks like that it would be better to not have diabetes. No one's gonna tell you that it 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 wouldn't so make the accommodations you need to make and then go about your life. You need to add in half an hour for a test so you can ha- you can you know have a low all right, do that and then go about your life. um don't try to hide it. don't try to pretend like it's not there. Do what you gotta do and and you know. Be 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 whatever kind of diabetic you need to be to live your life. And if that means you need to be a person with diabetes, be a person with diabetes. If that means you need to be a diabetic, be a diabetic. You know, just don't let it be the thing that controls you. And I think by hiding from it and running from it, like with all emotions, the more you run from it, the more it controls you. And so I think just 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 be it. Just let it let it be a part of who you are and and not all of who you are and also not none of who you are just let it be part of of who you are the the happiest i i think i i ever was was when i finally just 
acknowledge I was like, yeah, no, I'm I'm diabetic. That's mm. that's a part of me. And 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 find your community. I refused to go to diabetes camps as a kid. I refused to go to JDRF events. I would not reach out. And when my mom tried to reach out, I she like would go to the family picnics and I'd be like, well, you have fun. I'm going to stay at home. Mama Don, always trying to look out. Uh, shout out Mama Don forever. Shout out Mama Don. And, but, but like if the moment I found my community, I was obviously online first. But that 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 changed it. That changed it all. And the closer I got to the people that I felt like were my community, the closer I got to finding true and lasting acceptance to who I was. I mean, the diabetes conferences I attended at the beginning of my advocacy career were were absolutely life changing. But I always left feeling a little like the odd man out still. I, you know, these people were searching for like 5.0 A1Cs and I was sitting there with like a 12 being like, how do I get into the single digits? And I, I, I wondered if there was a place for me and people who were just trying to survive, people holding on by a thread. And it was after learning just how many people were feeling the same that 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 we created the the DBH conference, DBH con, because it was also clear that the healthcare professional should be seeing that side of diabetes too. And that's that's how the two track conference got was born because it's important for healthcare professionals to learn about treatment and it's important for patients to learn about recovery. But some of the most inspirational moments have been when a provider and a patient sit down at a lunch together and finally understand each other's experience as a human and see this is someone who's going through some shit and they just need some understanding. And that goes both ways. That's also a diabetic who's like, my endo is not the scariest person alive. There's someone who had a bad day. And I think sitting down at a lunch together really changes that. And that that goes back to the idea that we really wanted it in person and we wanted it to be a two-track event. We did not want to we did not want to isolate it. We did not want it to be healthcare only. We did not want it to be patient only. We wanted it to be both people. We wanted it to be able to sit down, look across from someone and say, this is not somebody who's non-compliant. You know, like we talked about earlier, this is somebody with depression. This is somebody who lost their mother. This is somebody who has an issue that you need to take a second to learn about because this is a human just like you and I. Well, and I, and I think too, there's room for growth and there's room for connection on both sides of the examination room. And I think like just being able to have a space for that, both for providers and patients is, is just a huge advantage. So very excited to, and, and I think you hit some notes on, in that as well, that I really want to hear your, your, your topic, your speech at, at DVHCon 23, the destructive nature of toxic positivity. Cause I just heard like how much, how damaging that can really be and, and you know how powerful it can be when you just say, hey, I do have diabetes and that is part of me. And, and I've talked about that on this podcast a lot of, you know, we're kind of diagnosed two separate times, like once when the doctor tells us and once when we accept that and, and make it part of us and, and embrace it uh, rather than resist. And so, you know, thank you so much for, for, you know, bringing a voice to that. I know Eritrea has one more question kind of before we start to close, but I want to make oh, sure- Oh, it wasn't a question. Space. 
it was more or less like something Aaron said that I was just like, wow, that really reminded me of something from when I, because I, Aaron, I, so it's kind of going backwards, right? But I'll just mention it now. So Aaron and I were diagnosed around similar times. I was also diagnosed when I was nine. And she's right. There is this like theme of teenage rebelliousness that kind of happens somewhere. And it can be, you know, an, further extreme for people. But I just remember something that an ACP told me once because I would like manipulate my blood sugars here and there, not every day and, or, you know, to that extent, but just, you know, here and there. And he was like, well, you have to manage your diabetes anyway. So why don't you just do it the right way? And I, that's just something like when Aaron was talking about how like it can just be so skewed the way people see it. It reminded me of that conversation. So it's so crazy that now, 15 years later, you know, the the way you HCPs talk to people with diabetes is so important because it is a seed that can live in your mind forever. Right. And so the importance of that just really got drilled home. And I, you know, I'm hoping to be at DBHCon this year. So I will be there. And I can't wait to hear everything else because it's just you're so passionate about what you're sharing that it's it's you know, it's palpable. So yeah. And also, you're just a great podcast interview, so I got to just keep remembering that just to have you back on because you really nail your points. You're great. Thank you. And I have to say, Erica, you were, I mean, it is, it's those, it's those one-liners, right? It's those one thing that a healthcare provider says. And, you know, we have, we have the 24-hour hotline where people can call if they're in any sort of mental health distress. And the amount of time somebody, because I, I, I work it from time to time, and the amount of times that someone has called and, and, and has shared something that a healthcare provider has said. And it's always, you know, one line, you know, my, my doctor has, has told me that if I don't lose 40 pounds, I'll be dead before I'm 20. And, and we, we did have, you know, a, a teenager call and say that. And how could you say that to a teenager? And how could you not think that a teenager is going to develop an eating disorder after saying that? And it's those, it's those one-liners that a healthcare professional will throw out without thinking about the fact that you're talking to a teenager who is you know, digesting everything you're saying and looking at you like an authority figure. And especially, you know, the language we use around adolescents, especially, but these these people that that are, are, are trying to learn how to take care of themselves and every single second of every single day and you're you're spending 10 minutes with them. You can't you can't watch, you know, the the nine sentences you you tell me like it. It is it is baffling. And so it really is it is really inspirational to see. And and like I said, I do like to it to go both ways because I I have had a lot of bitterness towards some healthcare professionals in my day, both from my own experience and especially from working with my clients and just being like, you know, how could you talk? And then to see healthcare professionals be like, I did not understand. I did not understand the 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 side of it. I did not understand. And then to see them be able to change their perspective. And to know they were just somebody who did not get it to. And, and we're all we're all just human. We're all just like, you know, like exactly like you said, Rob, we're all just trying to learn. And so to be able to see that the healthcare professionals taking advantage of this conference, trying to learn, trying to better themselves also makes me know, you know, they're not willfully ignorant. They're not taught this stuff in, in, in med school. There's not a class on diabetes and eating disorders. And so when you see healthcare professionals take this step, trying to learn, trying to better themselves. You're like, okay, we're, we're all moving forward at the same, you know, we're all trying to do our best. We're all, mental health and diabetes is not, it, it's still a new field. And so we're all trying to better ourselves together. And that's, that can be really hopeful to leave with is knowing that like, 
we're, we're all we're all in this together. We are, and I thank you for that reminder that this is all new. You know, I think we I I consider myself very fortunate to be as informed as I am in the diabetes community, and to have my you know content curated in a way that I make sure I don't miss things and that I'm up on the latest and greatest. And I just remember that that's not true for everyone and everybody's on their own path. And uh, there's so much work that just, just the basics of diabetes at the general public, like decades and decades of work and, and stigma that needs to be, you know, undone. Uh, but we are making progress and, and, and that's excellent. And I think like one thing I'd like to leave us on is you mentioned this just now, and I think it's a great final, it's a great finish is that if you do want to help and you do want to, you know, potentially connect with someone and and be a volunteer like how could someone who wants to volunteer for the helpline you know where where do they go where should we where should we send them yes please so we have a 24 hour hotline and we always need volunteers to staff it all you need to do is be somebody with diabetes who wants to learn about mental health and go through a couple of trainings but send us an email info@thebh.org pretty simple. You can also find us on Instagram at Diabolemia Helpline and shoot us an email and we will find something for you to do. You like numbers. We will let you play with our finances. You want to help people. We will put you on the phone line. You like event planning. We will let you help plan the conference. So, you know, we love volunteers and we love to connect people with things they are passionate about. So if you have diabetes and mental health issues in your past. And one of the best ways that you can stay on a track for recovery is to help somebody else. It was the way that I was able to find recovery. It can be a great way for you to find recovery is to help somebody who is also struggling. Well, we will absolutely include that in the show notes. And for those who are listening, and I always shout out the show notes, we did figure out a way to fix the show notes issues we've been having on Spotify. So be sure to check those out. Aaron, thank you so much for for giving your time today in the middle of your workday to talk to us so deeply about you know the work that you're doing at DBH. Again, the conference is the third international conference on diabetes and eating disorders. It is November 10th through 12th of 2023 in London. And if you're looking for a hashtag to follow on social media, it's DBHCon23 and more information at dbh.org. All right, Aaron, thank you so much again. Thank you so much for coming. Again, I can't wait to run into you at our next event and or or you know see your mom from across the conference and weird everybody out by waving and jumping and running over to her and saying, "Hey, you guys are you know really truly for me like friends with diabetes, and I just appreciate that and and for always being so supportive of diabetics doing things. I appreciate you guys' partnership and looking forward to seeing what great things come from this year's conference. Yeah, we're so excited to see you in Eritrea. Hope to see you there. Yeah, I'm real. I'm trying really hard to get it approved so that I can get the flights paid for because it's expensive. But yeah, I might just talk to you offline about other places who offer sponsored, like to sponsor Ooh, people. Fun. So yeah. All right. Well, it's so great to talk to you both, and thank you so much for having me. It was so great to be here again, Rob. And maybe I'll see you in another seven years to see what you're up to. Oh, and congratulations on the move, by the way. I can see the new place in the background. It looks great. You're actually the first podcast recorded in the new office. So uh, oh, you have, so you'll have that distinction forever. Oh, I feel so honored. Thanks so much, guys. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Aaron. Bye.